Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey guys, this is Kale Lowry. And this is V Rivera. We're the hosts of Baby, Baby Mama's, Mama's No, no Drama. Drama. Every Tuesday, we talk about parenting, co parenting, lifestyle, and sex, pop culture, current events, and pretty much all the things you want in one podcast. So download and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Listen to us every Tuesday and join us with all the tea. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey, buddy. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. As always, all the usual uh, requests. And uh, do check it out uh, at the TV. the streaming shows we're doing on a regular basis. And, of course, After Dark, we're obviously some of the Corolla, um, the Corolla, which we call them faithful over there uh today it's my pleasure to welcome i hope i'm pronouncing your first name right Stephen alexander his book is fear of a black universe an outsider's guide to the future of physics you can follow him at Stephen alexander s-t-e-p-h-o-n alexander like it sounds dot com also instagram at Stephen jazz and twitter at steph stem steph stem s-t-e-p-h stem s-t-e-m he's a professor of cosmology at brown university also a well-recognized jazz musician. He immigrated from Trinidad to the Bronx. We'll hear about some of that history. 2020, he was the president of the National Society of Black Physicists and leads Brown University's Presidential Scholars Program. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Wonderful to be here. Am I pronouncing your name correctly, Stefan? I don't want to get that wrong. Well, no, my name was named after my grandfather, Stephen, but it's, uh, it's pronounced Stefan. Stefan. Okay, excellent. But, excellent. Stefan. I'm happy to – I just – you know, I, I hate it when people don't get the names right and they repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And then you find out days later, it's like, eh, that really wasn't his name. It's – no, no, no. So – Yeah, the, the worst is when you repeat um, a friend's name, which is something for 20, that you've known for 20 years and yeah. you repeat it incorrectly. Yeah, That's trust me. Trust me. When you get older, that happens a lot. Get, get used to it now. <laughs> So, so tell us about the book first. Yeah, the book was basically um, a, a, for me like a fun adventure, um, and written in the spirit of Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, because it was the first science book I read when I was a high school student, um, and that book just remained an inspiration. And Richard Feynman's writing as well. So the book was basically written in that spirit, which is, you know, at one level kind of really respecting the reader, um, reader's intelligence and not really getting at the heart of what makes physics works, what makes the universe work in terms of physical law and trying to liberate the reader from jargon. So the first half of the book was just setting up the language, the concepts, um, the principles, what makes physics simple and elegant, and then using that um, and giving myself permission, um, using this book as a vehicle to... um, really explore and speculate and say 
what I call black things, black things meaning like state things that might stigmatize me that may even make my colleagues think I'm a crackpot. <laughs> but I felt like it was a way for me to explore, you know. G- give um, me an example. What do you mean? Like, for example, you know, um, I have a chapter where I talk about quantum field theory, which is now the underpinnings of like pretty much our physical reality. Everything is a quantum field. You're a quantum field, Dr. Drew. Yeah, um, and it's good for your health. <laughs> and no, I, I I am aware of that, and it it actually is reassuring to me because I was always very bothered by spooky action action at a distance, and uh, quantum mechanic, quantum field made it all kind of fit together for me. Yes, yeah, because you know the idea of a field, we all get that. Kids play with bar magnets, you know the fan, you know you trace, you put a magnet over a piece of paper, and then you see the magnetic filing trace out what was an invisible field line. And like, there's the idea that those types of fields that we experience in nature, like magnetic fields, really is a basic underlying feature of everything. And these field lines are just curling up and twisting in interesting ways and interacting to kind of give us the the universe that we see today. But there are anomalies. There are things that we don't know, we don't understand. And we ascribe that, we give it we call it black holes and dark energy and dark matter. So for me, it was a play on sort of like, what is it that makes us, you know, for things that we don't understand or that are invisible or whatever, ignored maybe, um, it was a play on that, on the word black in that sense and deliberately so. But there's also a shout out to my one of my favorite rap bands I grew up with in college, <laughs> Public Enemy. Yeah. Nice, <laughs> nice. I like, I like all the layers to this. Yeah, it, it, when I when you know they suggested you as a guest, I, the the book caught my attention. I'm like, that is interesting. I want to hear more about this. And and you talk about uh, dark matter. And, it means a lot to me that you like it because you know I really you know I, I you I'm a big fan of yours. I remember in, even back in like when I was in grad school, um, I I would I would watch you. You were part of a, a, tr- a trio of people, and um, you were of course the, the medical expert. Interesting. I wonder what that was. But anyway, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. But I love talking to physicists myself because it it's just so intriguing to me. And and back to dark matter and empty space and you know and whatever you want to call it. The the latest thing that caught my attention, and I don't know if this is a new finding or not. It's it's for me a new finding, which is that vacuum has weight. Right. That there's weight. There's something there to be explored that we haven't fully grasped yet. Yes. And that that might mm-hmm. be, and if I'm reading correctly, that might be the source of gravity. Yes. Very good. So I think one way to imagine this is um, if you zoom out to, to the vastness of empty space and you take a chunk of empty space, right? Yep. Like imagine you're able to do that. Take a bucket and take a chunk of empty space. I would call that vacuum. There's nothing there. It's just empty, quote unquote, empty space. But what if I tell you that that piece of empty space right in front of your face is no different in some respects than that empty space? I mean, there are some uh, modulo, some, you know, minor things, not minor things, but let's just imagine. Imagine we're doing a thought experiment. This yeah. Is a, the yeah. spirit of Albert Einstein. We're doing a thought experiment. Yeah. So you take a piece of empty space. And that's right. The idea is that the current physics that we understand is that the minute you turn on, turn on the effects of quantum mechanics, then... Um, the activity of quantum fields, in this case, you can think of these as vibrations of these fields, could actually create and annihilate and destroy um, elementary particles. And that process of so rapidly doing that, so in other words, it's happening so rapidly that not even a wink of an eye, the resolu- our eyes cannot 
cannot see that. So we basically see nothing. But on, but if you can zoom into those very, very rapid timescales, imagine you had a shutter camera that could basically, you know, look at events that's happening a billionth of a second, then maybe you'll be able to see some of these things. But so that, that thing is going to generate a form of energy, and we call this thing vacuum energy. And, and I, I've heard it described as almost bubbles, like things bubble into existence and back out again. That's a nice. That's a very good, a very nice um, and, analogy. And I think, it, I think the, the picture, bubble yeah. thing kind of comes out of string theory, doesn't it? Isn't that sort of where the bubble analogies come? Um, string theory definitely supports that picture, um, but it also comes from even our, our standard model. Um, you probably heard about this 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 anomalous magnetic moment for the for the muon, um, this G two thing. So it's been all over the news. And this, fact, this is from the accelerator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the pro- processes that generate that effect, some of them are these bubble effects. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. So it's for real. It's real physics, yeah. And, and that and the G2, I, again, this is, I am such a dilettante. I'm just trying to hang with you. And it, the G2 is sort of a, a sub-quark energy. Is that sort of what it is? It sort of hangs quartz together or something? Yeah, there are lots of processes that contribute to it. But I think the, the thing is that you have this muon, which is the heavier cousin of the electron. It's literally the muon is identical to the electronics, except it's, it's, it's heavier. Um, and the muon basically can, um, can have quantum effects that are like these bubble effects you're talking about. Interesting. And that will modify its magnetic, you know, little, it carries a little magnetic dipole, a little magnetic spin. And that, those effects will modify that, that effect very precisely. But there are many, there are gazillions of um, processes that contribute to it. But one... One of them are the same effects that generate this vacuum energy that I just told you about. So interesting. I hope people are staying up with this because it, 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 the the field – I mean physics is so – as you, I think you used the word elegant. It just so – I don't have good language for it, particular, specific. It, it really spells things out in you know, the third you – know, to five sigma and to the millionth decimal place. You know, it's, it's so accurate. So accurate. Compared to things like biology, which is an extrapolation way upstream, and we're sort of at our yes. at, at best able to make probabilistic sorts of predictions. But I, I just I just love the kind of, I wouldn't call it the certainty of physics, but the but the um, the I guess the accuracy, the degree to which the math is able to be played out again to five sigma or three sigma and to multiple 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 decimal points. You can't do that in biology. You cannot do that. Yeah, yeah, you can't really do that in biology, but I think that, as I said, the accuracy, that's one of the things that caught me about physics and attracted me. But the thing that's weird to me is that the things that are generating the accuracy are probabilistic events, number one, and then weird types of uh, um, processes that we don't directly see in our everyday lives. So when we, what Richard Feynman, you know, for example, informed us how to think about quantum mechanics, for example is that a particle goes from point A to point B and traverses in the world that we, um, you know, experience one unique path. But in the quantum world, like you, at least mathematically, you have to consider all the possible paths that this particle, the one particle takes. And only when you do this, you get the precision that we actually go measure in the lab. So there's a still this thing that I discuss in my book that is still unresolved, that physicists still disagree with, which is how do you interpret what's really going on with that electron? If you, you do the math right, and, you know, I mean, if you literally say, okay, what is it? You must have to accept that the electron is, one electron is, is traversing all possible paths at the same time. It's like, okay, here goes a Marvel comic, right? <laughs> right, yeah. right. Uh, that's sci-fi. 
Yeah. So, so to me, there, I get fast. I get fascinated because of things like that. I'm, I'm able to sort of take this weak instrument that is my central nervous system and sort of go, okay, we are just all one giant wave function. It's just a giant wave function, and everything we're seeing is all emergent properties of that wave mechanic, right? And so yes. it makes sense that we would be entangled through that wave mechanism. It just sort of makes sense mm-hmm. to me. But I get, I get fascinated by uh, the history of physics, you know, the, the, the Solvay conference and the Copenhagen synthesis and, and then the fact that people still argue about how to solve some of the, the controversies or the mysteries of, of the standard model, including the metal, many worlds theory. Are you one yes. of the many worlds people, or are you trying to find a different solution? Yeah, I, I, um, I had to encounter the many worlds thing. In fact, <laughs> here's a funny story. I worked on um, one of my jobs. I worked at a, you know, a hardcore particle accelerator, like that's the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. I was part of the theory group as a research scientist. Wow. At the theory group. Wow. And so this is where the metal. You know, this, if you want to think about the 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 physicists that are like doing like you know quantum mechanics right yeah that are like really making contact with the real world yeah um you would think that when you ask them and pin them down about how they they like to think about quantum mechanics they would probably be the most conservative right that uh, would be the expectation yeah you think that the people maybe in like some lab in outer space that's thinking about whatever the big the big bang would yeah. be more like oh, i think in many many worlds it yeah. turned out that my colleagues yeah, the senior, some of the senior people whose name I won't mention, but uh, serious people like people that discovered elementary particles and things, they believed in the many worlds. That was their take, right? It, it fits uh, them so, because it fits the math. They just sort of accept it if it fits the math, it right? Fits, it fits the math exactly. That's right. It fits the math. And, and, and I in think, a lot of ways, the processes that happen in the standard model, these precision processes, they really lend themselves to the many worlds interpretation. But I have a hard time still accepting it. Yeah, I, I personally, again, I have these weird ways of simplifying these ideas, and to me, I think of it. In, it makes sense to me if I think about infinity and one. You know, to the extent that anything converges on one, it also goes to infinity. And mm-hmm, I have mm-hmm. a feeling there's something right there that our brain can't quite process that might explain this in the sense that the many worlds might just converge on one world, even though it's also right. even even though it's also infinity worlds, it becomes one. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? No, no, it makes that resonates with me actually. And I thank you. I'll think about that. I yeah, we really will. Like you know, I mean, part of why actually part of another reason I, I wrote my book. My book was also an exercise to really make a very clear statement, which is that. If you look at the tradition of what made physics, the, the breakthroughs in physics, there are two things that came out of this. One is that in hindsight, things get formalized and taught in, in universities. And somehow we not, we, we're not explicit about like what led to the discoveries. Oh, I, listen, the, that, the aftermath logical yeah, process. And yeah. it's actually people, a lot of the founders drawing ideas from outsiders and from people who are not physicists. And so one of the reasons why you know, my book is a celebration of that as well. Um, the importance of the outsider, and I, right? I think you're absolutely. I, that's fascinating that you sort of see it that way. And and I, I kind of, when I look at the history of the sweep of history of physics, it's it's sort of, 
it's an uncanny narrative about a bunch of smart people fighting it out. You know, it's not as though it was yeah. just so. You know, and, uh, and, yeah, but, and, and but it led to it led to more and more and more accurate insights. Yeah, they were fighting it out. Yes, I mean amongst themselves, who are the other physicists, but you know they were also fighting it out amongst themselves. So like Schrodinger and Niels Bohr, I mean they drew like Schrodinger was reading Schopenhauer and the Vedic philosophies and things like that. So he was wrestling himself. Um, Wolfgang Pauli who was like an ultimate insider, was talking to Carl Jung and doing dream analysis, you know? So they were like, wow. I think the conceptual breakthroughs they had to make, they realized that they also had to go, they had to go on the outside as well and, and bring some tools from their inside. By the way, and then the danger, one of the things I want to make clear about the danger in, in writing a book like this to me, and I'm learning very quickly, by the way, is that <laughs> by no way am I saying that you should throw away the things that work. It's like a painter with a palette of different paints. I'm saying if you add more paint to the palette, that that might be interesting. But you don't want to get rid of the other, the, the red, green, and blue. You, know? and you don't throw the palette <laughs> yeah. away. So and, yeah, you and, don't throw the palette and, away. And do you do you experience yourself as an outsider, like a, like a prefer, even though you're in the midst of it? Yeah, I find it's an interesting thing, like the Groucho Marx saying that no matter how much um, I accomplish, um, that would get me on the inside. It was always something that's making me so, for example, like I was like, you know, it's I think one day when I graduate high school, then I'll feel fulfilled. I will be an ad- a young adult. And then you you still feel like a kid. Then you go to college. And then, and then so I felt the same way in my physics life. I was like, well, one day when I publish over 100 papers, then I'll feel like, you know, I've, I've arrived. And then, yeah. no, one day when I become full professor at the best, <laughs> what, I will be like I arrived. One day, and then I find that no matter how much I do that. There's still a part of me that never really feels yeah. like I'm fully in. You know? What do you? Where yeah. do you think? I, I have the same exact thing. Where, where do you think that came from for you? I think a lot for me, it's my personality. I am like you know, I'm I'm just as I I'm I, I'm an artist. I'm a musician. I oh I I I, I play in the, in in those spaces too. Um, just as an ex, you know, just a person that picks up my instrument and plays it. But and I talk to other people. I engage people seriously about their ideas that are not in my field and try to bring it in to my thinking. And I think the third thing I can't deny is that, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a brother from the Bronx, you know, and, and I, and I carry my, my personality on my sleeves. And I think that some people are like, you don't look like a talk like one. <laughs> we expect to see Simon from da da da. You know uh, we so need like, a German uh, dude in here. We need a white right, German right. guy with a weird accent. Stefan Alexander. <laughs> Actually, no. my, my full name is Stefan Haig Alexander. You know? oh, I love it. Uh, but, but to, to that, to that point, um, let me just, but before I go dig a little further, let me just say that hmm. I I always know when I'm around a real expert when there's an imposter effect. When when right. you you always feel like an because we we go from Dunning Kruger, which is I know everything, and then you f- right. fall into a valley as I don't know shit, and then you come out of that valley, and when you actually really know something, that's when you feel like an imposter. And so I, wow, I can relate to that very strongly. Yeah. And so, so when somebody starts talking about being an imposter, I, a I know they really know what they're talking about, <laughs> and and b that they're going to keep driving that drives them because they know how much there is to know. You know, it's a vast, vast field. And then the other thing, the the thing you're experiencing with, um, it's never enough feeling mm-hmm. that that usually comes from at least one parent, not just the Bronx environment, but there was your mom or somebody going. All right, you got an A in physics. What'd you get in math? Or all right, you got your math thing. What about your 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 saxophone? Are you playing it enough? You know, somebody just it's never enough from one of the parent typically. 
That's very interesting. Well, thanks for that insight. I'll I'll tell my uh, my therapist about it. <laughs> we'll tell we'll tell your or tell your mom or whomever the person was. Thank you. No, no, Even no, though- no, that really, no, that really, no, that really resonates. And I was like, I know the culprit out there. I know that culprit. Yeah. I'm not going to name it on the Doctor Drew show, though. You don't have to. And, and then and then you carry the Bronx stuff too, and that's sort of up front. But it it really is our parents that that, uh, that when we're never enough, never enough, never enough, and it's something in them that's sort of traumatized in the parent that's acted out through us. And I think it's, you know, I don't mind it. It kind of, The problem is it can go either way. Kids can really rebel against that and can become a problem for them or they become like you. They, they just start succeeding and doing and going on and on and on. And uh, I, I'm going to predict that one day you kind of start to, particularly if you're in therapy, <laughs> I do a lot of therapy myself, you start mm-hmm. to feel like, eh, okay. I can own this. I, that was that was pretty good. Look, look, take take a look at back at all that, but you'll still yeah. be looking towards tomorrow always, which is oh, good. That's, that's thank, not bad. Thank, I really appreciate that. Sure. Thank you so much. Of course, yeah. of course. So, I got something valuable. Good. I, okay. I'm getting nothing but the value infinity, out of this conversation. The infinity and one in many worlds and quantum cosmology. That's that's definitely. I'll be I'll be coming back. Yeah. I'll be like thank you, uh, Stefan Alexander. Solves the secret. Of the cosmos, and I, 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 but I, no, thanks I, to Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I, I've always because I'm fascinated with the brain. I'm, I'm fascinated with infinity because it's something our brain cannot handle, and, and you know, and whether it's infinity squared or infinity factorial or infinity to the infinity, you know, product. You got to get you got to get John Halper and the filmmaker. He, he's doing a project on infinity. I had uh, heard uh, that, and and I yeah, he's, uh, he's it worries fa- me. Fascinated. It worries me that it's not going to go. Because I think infinity, when you really get down to infinity, it's really one. It's just a conflict. It's just a unity. It's an infinity that comes to one. And that's what you're going to think about and, and solve the cosmological uh, constant, <laughs> the uh, cosmological mysteries. So um, so I said the uh, – oh, I know what I want to talk about. So, so I read – I tried to dig through a book and I'm going to – and this is unfair to sort of sort – of, uh, Bum rush you with this because you may not be familiar with this guy, and I forget his name now, which is he makes it even worse. But essentially, he I, I'm fascinated also by probabilities because I'm, I'm a biologist. I, I'm really interested in probabilities. I, I have a kind of keen mm-hmm. sense of probabilities, and I have no intuition for probability. By the way, interesting. Keep going. Interesting. Yeah. See, I, I have a deep intuition for it, but I but I I know it come. I know it's not. I don't know how to say the language for it yet. I, let, let me just say it this way probabilities aren't actually real they're representations of something and this and this guy a physicist derived probability from the laws of entropy and and I tried to dig through I I couldn't do it I, he had his way of thinking was just so alien to me uh, is that mm. do you know anything about that is that can can you help well, me Well I do did, know that someone did derive gravity from entropy this was Eric Valinde being one person um, but that's probably something else I Well mean, I, it must it, gravitational entropy it, it must overlap because people are looking at entropy as sort of one of the fundamental aspects of the universe that way to describe mm-hmm. it and so so you know anything that comes out, again emergent properties are going to have to come out of that and this guy is sort of i, I got to go back to the book and see if i can slog through it again but it, but he was just saying because entropy has many states i think is essentially what he was saying and he was deriving yes. and he was deriving all these different sets of states and then doing some heavy math mm-hmm. on those sets and mm-hmm. uh, and then deriving probability from that, and I, I I couldn't I couldn't make the leap. But do you, let's do. You, can you help me at least sort of um, a sketch on where probability comes from? Is that something you can sketch for me at least? You know, why do we have probability? Mm-hmm. Is it in a, in, a, in a universe where you can 
isolate a muon and uh, entangle it with something else. Why do why this shouldn't this shouldn't be a probabilistic universe? Except entropy is highly probabilistic. I mean, it, it, all the oxygen in this room doesn't suddenly go into the corner, but it could. There's a probability of that yeah. happening. Yes, that's very interesting. So, yes, it's something I've also struggled with myself. Um, so quantum mechanics is the first place where we in physics, not the first place, but definitely, I mean, Boltzmann is definitely in thermodynamics. But the place where it's really sharp for me is, is in quantum mechanics, where, and just in a, in a nutshell, Schrodinger, you know, made the leap and said, the quantum leap, no pun intended, and said, think of the electron as a wave, actually, that's, you know, like, Forget electrons. Forget everything is a wave. If everything is a wave, then a wave can be highly peaked. Mm. So think of like a, a wave that's highly, highly localized and peaked, mm-hmm. like a pulse. Mm-hmm. And think of now the electron really is just this pulse. And then, of course, someone said through a uh, what they call a, 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 a wrench at it and said, actually, well, what if this peak actually splits into, into two mm. because of sp- it runs into a wall and then splits up? Does the electron split up? And then that's where physicists like um, Max Born said, Oh, one way out of this is that we can still accept this wave thing, but it's actually a wave of possibilities. It's a probability wave. So mm-hmm. this is where quantum mechanics um, makes contact with probability. But it it makes contact actually as an axiom, as an assumption, an assumption that tends to work with experiment, but it's not derived from quantum mechanics. That's one interesting thing. And so, right, it's like, it, it seems to work. That assertion works. But is, isn't it, um, though, isn't it sort of a placeholder, though, until you can get more a, and more accuracy? <laughs> isn't that sort of how physics yeah. think, physicists think about it? No, that's right. But uh, the, the statement here for quantum mechanics is that you will never be able to have the accuracy, and therefore there'll be you always have this indeterminacy that you should, will associate probability with. Uh, and that's where Neil Werner Heisenberg came with the uncertainty principle. Uh-huh. Right? By saying if you have a fundamental uncertainty, that you'd never, based on this relation, on this, you know, the change, the uncertainty in velocity, uncertainty position, right, are related to each other, right? The more you know about the other, what have you. Therefore, you can't help, therefore, about thinking about probability. Right. Now, but that link, that link actually, for me, is not, it's not something I deeply understand, yeah. me, to be yeah. fair. No, I, I think that's but, right. I think, I, think, I think it's an important but, area for thought because it, it doesn't but, quite it, – it's not, it's not a quid pro quo. It's not you know, QED, right. right? You know, Right. I, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but one place where it actually makes – where I actually do challenge the idea of probability is when we think about quantum cosmology, when mm. we think about applying quantum mechanics to the entire universe mm-hmm. into everything. So what does it mean – that you know, I have a probability for one universe, mm. right? Mm-hmm. If the, right, so then this is where the multiverse hypothesis comes in. Say, well, you have many universes within one universe, and so you can have a, an ensemble, right? The minute I talk about an ensemble, which is the possible outcomes that could happen, right? Then I can then start thinking about okay, then what is the probability of the universe being like this, or being like that, or being like that? Mm. Because then I'm assuming that there are different outcomes for the initial state of the universe, assuming that there's no initial singularity of the Big Bang or you got rid of that, right? Mm-hmm. So there are lots of ifs there, but I would rather think that in quantum cosmology, and this is something I'm working on now with some students, um, which is that you give up probability. Probability is something that um, that is not a priori um, applicable to the universe. So when we, what I mean by, by that specifically is if there's a wave function in the universe, 
you don't um, assume that it, it's a probability statement yet. Um, the question is, what is what what is it, right? Yeah. And here's where the, the new idea is: you trade probability for non-locality. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the universe is just intrinsically non-local. There are no yet local events within this universe in its early stages. And once you establish some form of non-locality, you ready for this? Uh-huh. The expectation is that probability emerges from that. It's an emergent property. That, but, that's, I think that makes perfect sense to me. I, I've heard theories like this described. Those like, are words and I don't have equations. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. But that, seems, that intuitively sounds right to me. For those with type 2 diabetes, of course, the first and foremost is lose weight, manage your diet, and watch your glycemic control. But for some, it can be an uphill battle. A1C levels, you want to get them where you need them. But uh, you can't quite get there, and you're working with your doctor diligently. There's some evidence now that managing beyond exercise and diet, your gut biome and microbiome might need some attention. Now pendulum glucose control is invented. Now pendulum glucose control has been designed to fill in those gaps, the one and only probiotic designed to help diabetics. With pendulum, you can feel in control sometimes, uh, and it's something to add to your dietary management and your exercise and your weight loss, of course. Pendulum's team of scientists, physicians, innovators isolated a unique strain of beneficial gut bacteria that seemed to be of some utility in type 2 diabetes. Take control of your glucose levels today. Try Pendulum Glucose Control for 90 days. If you are not completely satisfied with your levels, you get your money back. Visit PendulumLife.com to find out more and use promo code DREW for 20% off your first bottle of membership. That is P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E.com, promo code DREW. Well, now it's ridiculous that sizes, brand-to-brand change, we all settle for traditional retail sizes, but why? What does a medium person even really look like? They were different. Pants are made to fit one body type, and everyone else has to sort of settle for that, even when we're shaped differently. No one wants to take their athletic leisure wear to the tailor. You're spending way too much. You're already spending way too much money on your clothing. Well, that's why you've got to check out Public Rec. They make elevated athleisure wear, as they call it, in multidimensional sizes. I wear them all the time. They feel like you're wearing a sweatpants, but I literally went to dinner in them last week, and I thought, oh, it's okay to wear sweatpants. Everyone thought I was wearing slacks. Better fit, comfort, fabric unlike any other. They spent years engineering the perfect blend of softness, stretch, durability, come in nine different colors, and they've got a whole wardrobe, including shorts, T-shirts, polo jackets, even golf gear. This is always in my rotation. Constantly I wear them at home, and now I'm starting to wear them out in the world as well. So Public Rec, everyone. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer. Before we get into that, I also want to mention their pockets are perfect. They're deep enough. They have zippers. They have rear pockets that are the right depth. Everything, it's like wearing a slack, only actually better design, frankly. You will not be sorry. Uh, They are constantly, uh, they're my constant companion. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for the Dr. Drew podcast listeners. Go to publicrec.com, use promo code DOCDREW, that's D-O-C-D-R-E-W, to receive 10% off. That is publicrec.com, use promo code D-O-C-D-R-E-W, DOCDREW, for 10% off. And, And I've heard some people talk about, like, you know, the screen we look at on our computer 
you know, sort of being the equivalent of what we're looking at in the universe when, in fact, there's, there's locality back in the body of the – you know, this, the, the screen isn't real. What's, what's real is what's going on in the guts of the computer. It's just reflecting a, a, a thing in space on the computer screen. Mm-hmm. If that, if that, a hologram. Yeah, a hologram. Sort of, sort of like it's a hologram. And that sort of makes sense to me that there's some, there's some unity in the background, right? Mm, you know, mm. and that uh, I like that. Yeah, it's it's all so fascinating. I, to me. I like that. that's a great title for a for a future physics book, Unity in the Background, because Ooh. it's a play on words too. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I like it. Unity. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully, you can play on. Hopefully, by the time you write it, there will be more unity in the world. For Christ's sake. <laughs> that's <laughs> oh god. Man. Yes. Oh man. Are uh, and so your position right now is at Brown. Is that right? That's right. Are you assistant professor, I'm professor, a- or are you? I am a full professor. Okay, so you must be you're done, you're good. You feel good now, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, um yeah. I know. There are a bunch it. of stu- there are a bunch of students that, that want to graduate and get jobs, so basically <laughs> Hey, let's let's talk for a second about the uh the slit experiment because it's sure. it, the the millennials are very hooked on that experiment. I don't I'm know clueless if, about the slit experiment. I'm clueless about it, but keep let's we can talk about well, it. Well, they haven't this is what I want to get out about it. So it's a, it's an experiment where uh, you take two slits and you fire something through it and they I think it was electrons and they behaved both like a wave or a particle, right? They could do either wave or particle. And one of the implications of the study was depending on what you're looking for is how it behaved. I I have a pro. I don't know that that's the interpretation, but the millennials are hanging onto that, saying, "You see, it's our brain, our observing brain affects the physical function of the universe." I'm like, uh, I, I there could be a million other interpretations. Uh, what, what? How do you put it together? Well, effectively, that's what von Neumann um, was arguing at the end of the day in his Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics. A great, you know, one of the founders of computer science, if not the founder, and also. A great anyway so von neumann um argued that if you trace the events that have to take place to collapse this wave function so that it realizes itself at a particle when you make an observation of the slit or not it somehow has to register with your consciousness okay now but that's different to me than saying that i mean now whether that's you know that hypothesis um um, a claim that's still debated, and I discussed it in my book, by the way, oh, good. Uh, at length. Good, um, but I'm not able to reproduce it. You would think that after writing this book about this stuff, that I'd be clear about it. I guess I'm not. But, um, but one thing that um, is interesting that I is this idea that of solipsism that somehow because of that, you know, everything I see, I create. Right. You know, like I think that that's what's the word. That extrapolation is a little bit too um, extreme. Yeah, or too a, extreme. It's a just so yeah. thing, and and yeah, and just it, because my consciousness is interacting with um, a very active process. I mean, if a mountain is, uh, you know, an avalanche is falling, I'm not going to observe it and and make the thing reverse itself, and the mountain comes back together. Yeah, right? exactly. Anyway. I, I I study consciousness a lot, and uh, that that kind of placement for consciousness is. Way, giving it way too much um, power. It just isn't. It right. just isn't that kind of a thing. And mm-hmm. it, I would think von Neumann would have to have some theory about what the interaction is in the physical universe. Is that does the does the is it is it a quantum moment and we're just getting into multiple worlds and you just you look one way it's one world you look the other way it's the other world. Is it is it the many worlds thing coming to bear here or something like that? 
Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Um, that's an interesting thought. Um, one thing I would like to add to that, what are your thoughts about panpsychism in this context? Because that was a rabbit hole I went down um, in this discussion. <laughs> it, 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 we are biological entities. We're not magical entities. We mm-hmm. are biological entities. We've, you know, mm-hmm. I, 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 maybe some weird things happen along the way where an asteroid hit and added some stuff to our genetic material. Fine. I can accept that. But it's still ultimately biology at work here. And as such, the constraints of biology apply. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ma- it's not magic. It is biology. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that the human um, central nervous system is highly connected to other human nervous systems. Uh, I, you know what I would often think of it? Do you know what a Volvox is? When you were in high school, did they ever show you a mm-hmm. Volvox? Get no, a, what is get it? Get a picture of a Volvox. It's it's a single. I'm sorry. It's a single cellular organism that that they gather together and form these large spheres, and they're just this one. Oh wow! Whole, yeah, and and I, I want to see this. Yeah, yeah, and so future. so definitely, it is the individual biologies that are coming together to create the sphere. But the sphere is now a different thing together. Uh, and there's lots of communication, biological communication amongst these single-celled organisms. You're going to look up Volvox? Good. I think it's called a Volvox if I remember right. <clears throat> and uh, and I, there's something uh, much like, you know, when we take infinity to one, you're, you're, you're that, there it is, that, that upper right. Yeah, that's these little spheres. And each one of those little dots in the sphere is a separate mm-hmm. organism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Got it. And uh, – much much like when you take infinity to one, you're taking it to something else. And there's no doubt that there's something else created by all of us together. But ultimately, the the forces at work are still definable, uh, measurable, understandable. And some of it is uncanny. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I have had experiences both as a patient in a therapeutic context and as a practitioner in a therapeutic context where I, mm. I cannot yet explain what happened because stuff mm. was communicated to me by the patient that it was not mine and got into my head and my sensory experience. And I, was, I knew it was not me when I was having it. I knew it was something the patient was bringing to me because uh, it was fully other than anything I'd ever experienced before. And, and that's bodies in space communicating essentially, that, that the, the totality – we way too much focus on just the brain in the last twenty years, and not enough on the the brain embedded in an autonomic system that is informed by the body, and that's yes. that is a that is an area of ongoing research. It's a very active area right now. And it, what do you it, think about mu- about the role of music in the, in those kind of group situations and the nervous system? Th- the- there's no doubt that 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 is a way in, so to speak, because it, and, and mm-hmm. I I would argue it's you know it's obviously it's into our parietal cortex, but it's also into our bodies. Our, our bodies move so, in response to it. Our bodies have a reaction to it. And just think in terms of feelings are primarily things that come out of the body. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, I'm working on a, a new project with this hip hop museum in New York. So this new hip hop museum that we're going to explore. I want to explore that um, this sort of, you know, the fact that um, in the when you know, I'm from the Bronx and like yeah. I was during a time when hip hop was really flourishing uh, yeah. in its early stages in the '80s, and you know, it was really interesting to me why was it that people like DJ Cool Herc and Afro Bombada were trying to get the biggest sound systems to so that the, you couldn't just hear the baseline but feel it really feel it yeah and that just reminded me of like our nervous system not it's not just the brain vibrating no 
it's not like just our bodies and how that you know and, and, so and then and by the way that was a that you know I, I I'm fascinated by that history too I've seen a couple documentaries about it. that's the level of my understanding but but the collective experience was all there yeah. in in this yes. this was this was a collective yes. Uh, and and so we we th- lots of stuff goes back and forth. I mean, that's what drove the evolution of the music. Like so, that's why Grandmaster Flash wanted to get get the breakbeats because he knew that's what the crowd wanted. So it, it drove the evolution of the turntables and scratching and and all that stuff yeah. just from that collective experience. Yeah. yeah. So let's hang a little lantern on that. Grandmaster, I, I agree with you. Grandmaster Flash was one of the geniuses that really got it to the next level, right? And, yes, absolutely. And, and the idea of the break, most people don't think about what that is. You as a musician know exactly right. what that is. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking about what, you know, why the break and what's in the break and what did the break do for them and how did he, how did he know to exploit the break that way? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's so interesting. Uh, is, is it was a, a feedback from the collective. It was a feedback from the crowd that said, we want this. And, and, then, and what, what I'm exploring with is hip-hop, the Universal Hip Hop Museum. Actually, it's going to be the mecca of hip hop in the great. world. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And one of the things that we're exploring is the science behind that. And so that's why this thing that you were talking about, this box thing, is really interesting. Well, there's a guy, you know, the two guys that are sort of the, the fathers of this space right now is a guy named Alan Shore and a guy named Peter Fonagy. Uh, S-C-H-O-R-E and then Fonagy uh, – no, I'm sorry, and uh, Stephen Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S. They're, they're, yeah, I'm writing they're, it down. Yeah, Porges particularly is really working on the, the mechanism of socio-emotional exchange, you know, how that works, how we're able to tune our ear to vocal prosody in a parent and that kind of stuff. It's very – What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. Spell, wait, spell that name again? F- P-O-R-G-E-S, Stephen Porges. And it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Yeah. He's he's uh, an older gentleman now. You want to get him while you can. If I you'd did like couple... to hear him on Dr. Drew Podcast, yeah. you can listen to him on episodes 63 or 90. And, I'm there. I'm there. I'm and, there. Well, he, I think you would have a different sort of – but but yeah, he, he was good. So Sixty three and ninety were five years ago. Yeah, so that's, know, that's a little dated now. So maybe go no, check but out. it's the theory. He he is he is imp- he has crystallized the way he describes it now in a much clearer way. But we were talking around the same material. With sure. Him. Uh, and then Alan Shore, S C H O R E A L A N S. These are these guys are neurobiologists. Shore is actually a psychoanalyst, neurobiologist, and. And they, they sorry, but it's my job. If you'd like to hear Alan Shore on the Doctor Drew yeah. podcast, you can go listen to episode sixty-five. Yeah, yeah. And and I, got I them all Doctor Drew, you got them all. I, well, I, these guys <laughs> are my heroes, and, and and I don't know. I really never talked to them about the collective. I don't think I may have gotten into it a little bit with Porges, but I, I there is there is all sorts of uncanny information being exchanged that we are not consciously aware of. All kinds. All kinds, mm-hmm. and then and then my physics head always wonders. And you, you I'm going to sort of end with this question because it's a super unfair question. But here we go. This is back to the physics. I always wonder if the function of temporality of time versus the arrow of time, which is I just see that as biology in, in sort of mm-hmm. progressive change, mm-hmm. but whether mm-hmm. temporality, which is Time as a dimension mm-hmm. enters into our biological systems in ways that we can't see and might have some real effect on us. You know what I'm saying? I think time comes mm-hmm. through us. Time, time comes through us in our bodies and brains through the generations, right? What's passed on to us through mm-hmm. generations. But I always wonder if there's not some sort of – some other impact of time on the biological systems we haven't quite figured out yet that's not strictly speaking the arrow of time. 
Here's something. Here's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna riff with that. Yeah. Another thing in my book, I have a chapter because I explore questions about. Again, I speculate about. I I I'm the in, ultimate in um inter, interloper, and I interlope in other fields. I I have a chapter on biology. It's called a cosmic biosphere. Mm. And I mm. I try to find. I try to. I, I had a dumb question. I was a grad student learning about the expanding universe in general relativity. It's like. Why do I care that the universe expands? Okay, it's expanding. Okay, but it has no impact on me here on Earth. So I remember being shameful to even ask that question because, <laughs> duh, you're, you know, it's the theory of general relativity. What are you talking about? So anyway, <laughs> I decided to revisit this question and say, is there any weird link between the expansion rate of the universe and life itself? Mm. All right. So okay. because, it, so let me say another a way of thinking about this. You probably heard something called the Hubble rate, the Hubble expansion rate. So Hubble, it's basically is basically gives you information about how far fast galaxies are receding away from us, which is a measure of the expansion rate of the universe. It turns out that the Hubble rate itself, right? The Hubble rate itself is if you actually take the inverse, put a one over the Hubble rate, it's yeah. actually a time scale. It's actually a time scale. It's a temporal scale. Uh. And it captures basically information maybe about the age of the universe since radiation dominated the early universe, you say. So this is how we get the 13 point something billion years. Uh. It turns out that that rate is actually the same order of magnitude. The expansion of the universe is the same order of magnitude as the, the order of magnitude for the time life actually, uh, biological life existed on Earth. Hang on a second. Say, say this again. I'm not sure I got it. So the, so, the, the time of the, the rate of expansion or time – say it again. Yeah, so – the, the Hubble expansion rate, which is basically the information about the global expansion rate of our universe, yeah. is a ti- is also a time scale. Okay, and that time scale has an order of magnitude of ten to the nine years. Okay, that's a giga year or a billion years yeah. in the order of a billion years. Right. Yeah. If you look at the the time scale for which life emerged on Earth, it's the same order of magnitude. Oh. Interesting. So there's a coincidence. A coincidence. We call these things coincidences. It could just be a coincidence and have no. You know, nothing to do with anything. We have those. But in physics, in the history of physics, we do sometimes pay attention to coincidences. Like the dark matter, there's something called a WIMP coincidence, the weakly interacting dark matter coincidence, which is a confluence or a coincidence of the weak energy scale, the weak scale, the, the scale of the weak masses, and also the scale of the dark, dark matter. And so people paid attention to those coincidences and pursued that. This coincidence and, and that I discovered by writing this book is also in the, the, the stated clearly the cosmic expansion rate or the cosmic time scale is com- is coincident has same same coincidence as a time scale that which biological life emerged on Earth. Does that imply they're related specifically? In other words, did biology begin at the beginning? Well. I look at coincidences as basically uh, circumstantial evidence to pursue that question further and look in, into more detail. Like, what, what is, are there other things that link the expansion rate of the universe with the necessity of life? So one way that I explore that is through the lens of entropy. Oh, interesting. You know, what's interesting to me is in biology, we tend to dismiss um, coincidences as just probabilistic experiences. But it also occurs to me that in physics, you dismiss coincidences at your peril. At your peril, yeah. Yeah, interesting. One interesting thing is that it's – but it's a preposterous coincidence to even consider because the expansion rate seems to be about like, you know, what's happening out there in the universe with distant galaxies 
And life is something happening, at least to us here, right on this earth, yeah. which is decoupled from the expansion rate because we are we are in a gravitationally bound system, our solar system, that doesn't really feel the expansion rate. So why would one have anything to do with the other anyway? And so, but anyway, the point of, of this book was to just have fun exploring that and speculate. To me, it goes right to entropy because we're the one exception to entropy in the universe. Now we're talking business. So yeah. <laughs> tell me more about your thoughts here. No, that's well, actually I mean, interesting. Because ent- we, we go back, we, we've we harnessed entropy in, for a while while we're alive. Life has sort of harnessed entropy and it goes doesn't necessarily go the direction it's supposed to go. We, when exactly. We, when, so we life, die, when we die, it goes, the way, so, it, it goes the way it's supposed to go. But when we're alive, we're sort of harnessing entropy. Well, that, that's interesting because I do go down a little bit of that rabbit hole in that chapter. And I get stuck then because we realize that actually we don't fully understand entropy in a gravitational context. Right. And since the expansion of the universe was is about the, the doings of gravity, what happens to this entropy? Yes. That life is expungent. Oh right? my God. So it's, it's interesting, yeah. I, we got to have another conversation when you solve that. Or these, exactly. get those some theories. When you have infinity in one setup and you have the, the this entropy question, uh, even, even, even if you think you have an intuition about it, I want to talk to you again, okay? I'd love that. All right, my friend. In the meantime, can people hear you play jazz somewhere? Yes, I'm working on a, a new band actually. Where, as we speak, it's um, it's called the the band is called Metaverse. Um, and, of course, but it's course. an ex- exploration. <laughs> it's an exploration with um, with also Indian music as well as jazz oh, and wow. Latin music. Oh my god! So Ashish um, Ashish Vyas, otherwise known as Hash from TV Corporation, is in a band, and Srini Reddy, great sitar player, and oh, um, and and yeah, so Jesus. Um, Jesus, um, a great, a great um, um, Latin percussionist. So, yeah, it's going to be more improvisational. But yeah, that's something I'm very excited about. These days. Well, we do that. I do appreciate you spending a little time with us. The book is a, you know. a fear, please, a fear of a black universe and outsiders' guide to the future of physics. Again, uh, are you are you technically Dr. Alexander? Or Professor Professor Alexander is what I always think is a higher standing, that's frankly. What, so let me let me give you that. That's what the freshmen call me. Okay. Professor Alexander. My, my, my lovely freshman at Brown. <laughs> and bril- brilliant, lovely freshman. Where, where he leads Brown University's Presidential Scholars Program, uh, boosting underrepresented students, which is uh, obviously a, a major importance these days. Stefan Alexander, S-T-E-P-H-O-N, alexander.com, uh, at Stefan Jazz, and at Steph Stem is where you can find him on Twitter. And uh, my friend, I hope to talk to you soon. It was a pleasure spending a little time with you. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a great blast. Take, take care. See you soon, and we'll see you all next time. For Colin Times and Topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.